Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. several years shocked both our national and global economies as the government undertakes massive spending programs to counteract the damage the national debt the deficit and inflation have become issues of national debate i've invited stephanie kelton author of the deficit myth modern monetary theory and the birth of the people's economy to take us behind the rhetoric and make the case for a different way of looking at the way we raise and spend money at the federal level. When things break, we have an opportunity. We can pick up the pieces and put them back together the old way, or we can look for better ways to build. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin dealing a devastating blow to his party's nearly $2 trillion top priority sinking the Build Back Better bill in a Sunday interview. I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. New numbers tonight show an inflationary wave is still building in the U.S. economy. The Labor Department reports consumer prices jumped more than 6% in October from a year ago. That was the biggest increase in 31 years. We've been seeing, once again, the calls that, oh, we're going to have a debt problem and the deficit is blowing up. Uh, How should we be thinking about things instead? I'm Stephanie Kelton, and I'm a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm fighting to show why money is really no object for the federal government and why anything we can actually do as a people, we can afford as a nation. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so much for joining us on Sorry Not Sorry. Before we get started, I think it would be super useful to just have a quick vocabulary lesson on some economic terms that many people probably don't know, don't understand. So will you help us out with some words? Can you explain what the national debt, the deficit, and inflation each mean? Okay. Since inflation is on everyone's mind, let's do that one first. So When economists talk about inflation, first thing you should know is that we have all these different ways of measuring inflation. So if someone asks you, what is the inflation rate? You could give them seven or 10 different answers and all of them would be correct. So what do we mostly mean? We mostly mean that prices are going up and not just the price of one or two things, but the prices of things just generally in the economy. So we construct these things called price indices, and people maybe have heard of a CPI, a consumer price index. That's the most popular one. 
And it's just a basket of goods that is supposed to represent the average buying behavior of a consumer. So we typically spend things, uh, money on things like housing and transportation and food and entertainment. And so it's like, what does the average consumer spend money on each month? And then we put all those things in a basket and we track the movement in the prices of all the things inside the basket over time to see if the basket of goods is getting more expensive, less expensive, around the same cost. And when things generally are getting more and more expensive, then we say that there is consumer inflation. Okay. And debt, national debt? Okay. Let's do the deficit first because then that leads us into the debt. So the deficit is just the difference between two numbers. And that makes it really easy. Okay, so this thing we call the government deficit is the difference between how many dollars the government spends into the economy each year versus how many dollars the government subtracts back out of the economy, mostly through taxation. So to keep the numbers really simple, if the government were to spend $100 into the economy and only tax $90 back out, we would say the government has run a deficit and we would say the deficit is 10. We might write a minus 10 and say the government's budget is in deficit. They spent more than their tax revenue debt. Okay, so the deficit happens each year. Every year we get a figure for the government deficit, the difference between how much they spent that year and how much they collected in taxes. National debt is the historical record. It's like looking in the rearview mirror and saying from the beginning of the country's inception, How many times has the government run a deficit? So it's like a running total. It tells you the history of all the times the government added more dollars to the economy than it subtracted back out. So the way I think about this thing we call the national debt is it's just the dollars that were spent into the economy, but not taxed back out. And they currently exist in the form of U.S. government bonds called treasuries. So it's the treasury bond market that people are really talking about when they talk about the national debt. And what about the relationship between the debt and the deficit? So when the government is running deficits each year, it means it is increasing the number of dollars it spends into the economy, less taxes. So the national debt is increasing. But remember, the deficit itself is like a deposit of dollars into the economy. So when the government is depositing more and more dollars into the economy each year, the historical record of that, the national debt, increases. You argue, actually, that managing economies at the state and local level is fundamentally different from doing so at the national level. Can you explain the main difference for my listeners? Yes. So the main difference is that the federal government's budget works differently, that Congress has something called the power of the purse, okay? They are the issuer. Think of the federal government as the issuer of our currency. In fact, you and I can't create the U.S. dollar, right? If we try to manufacture the dollar, it's called counterfeiting. It's illegal. We go to jail. Mayors and governors can't manufacture the currency. If they could, then when COVID hit, Mayors would have taken care of their own city budgets and governors would have taken care of their own state budgets, but they couldn't 
They needed the federal government to step in, provide some support. And so why is the federal government able to do what states and local governments can't do? And the answer is the government is the issuer of the dollar. When the economy screeched to a halt in mid-March, businesses shut down almost overnight. And quickly, millions of workers became unemployed. Within weeks, the government moved to provide trillions of dollars of stimulus relief to workers and businesses throughout the economy. $1,200 checks to anyone who makes less than $75,000. This is another $600 a week for four months. Congress approving another $484 billion for loans. So where does all this money come from? Is it taxpayer funds? Is the government printing a bunch of new cash? As you might expect, there's a lot more to know. And state and local governments, like the rest of us, are what I call a user of the currency or user of the dollar. They can't manufacture it. They don't have the ability to issue the currency. So they have to go out and get it from somewhere. And the main place that cities and states get their currency is from the rest of us in the form of tax payments, property tax, sales tax, income tax, and the like. Okay, and you touched on this a little bit, but just to go more in depth, how does increased federal spending potentially lead to inflation? It's not just federal spending that could create inflationary pressures, it's any spending. And so what you're seeing right now, for example, is a lot of us have been trying to buy a lot of goods. Through the pandemic, we spent less money on things like services, going to the salon, going to hotels and restaurants and bars. And we spent more on cars and computers and furniture, turning our spare bedrooms into home offices and that sort of thing. So goods have to be produced and manufactured and shipped. And so as many of us spent more on goods, that created some supply pressure, some bottlenecks, and it created some inflationary pressures. So it's not just government spending. It's any form of spending that can lead to inflationary pressures. But government could potentially be a source of inflation. If the government had sent out, let's say, $14,000 checks instead of $1,400 checks to most people in March of this year, you can imagine the potential for much higher inflation as a result of that. I want to switch gears for a second and discuss in an op-ed in the New York Times back in April, you discussed the president's infrastructure plan and you wrote that Democrats are thinking about fiscal responsibility the wrong way. How so? Well, because what we often hear and what we're hearing from the administration right now, frankly, is that the Build Back Better Act is fiscally responsible because it's quote unquote paid for. And what that means in Washington speak is that it doesn't increase the deficit, that the government has a plan to remove a dollar from someone's hands for every dollar that they plan to spend into someone else's hands. So what President Biden has said is, I'd like to do 
child care. I'd like to do elder care. I would like to make two years of college free. I'd like to spend money in all these different ways that strengthen the social safety net and help build a better economy. And to keep all of that spending from increasing the government deficit, I'm going to remove money from people who make more than $400,000 a year from big corporations and so forth. That keeps the spending deficit neutral. It means that it doesn't have an impact on the government's budget. And what I suggested in that piece is that's the wrong way to think about fiscal responsibility. There's nothing inherently irresponsible about doing things the way Congress did the CARES Act in March of last year. That was $2.2 trillion of spending. It all added to the deficit. And I would argue that it was fiscally responsible to do that. So what's not fiscally responsible is pushing the economy too far, is spending too much into an economy that can't safely absorb that spending and causing an inflation problem. In other words, the way to evaluate whether the government is being responsible when it passes legislation isn't to say, does it add to the deficit? Ooh, that's bad. It's, does the spending create other problems in the economy? Does it exacerbate income inequality? Does it fuel inflation that would be a problem in the economy? That sort of thing. So we're just thinking the wrong way about what it means to manage the government's spending in a responsible way. Yeah, I think, though, that when you're dealing with such unprecedented times, to look at the responsibility of our government and what we need to come out of this, not only as a nation that is okay, but one that actually comes out of it better off than when we went into it. I think part of this and I think part of the insecurity of the country that we are seeing now I think a lot of people are seeing it for the very first time, even though, you know, as activists, we've been saying that it's been there for years. I do have to say the recognition about the word responsibility and what the government is supposed to help the people of its country with, I think is it's really important. And to be able to to look back on this time and say we had to take risks because this was such an unprecedented time, but this is what came out of it that was really positive. And I think we will see people's lives change from Build Back Better. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure what it means for the fiscal responsibility of our, of our government and our financial institutions, but I do think it will impact people's lives. And at the end of the day, Isn't that what we should be doing? Yes, it is. And I would argue that you're exactly right in terms of the way we should be thinking about and evaluating these government interventions. You know, did they lift people up? Did they save jobs? Did they help families hold together through the pandemic? Did they lift kids out of poverty? And maybe most importantly, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, we're on track to cut child poverty in America in half this year. And in the process, while this is all going on, the economy created more than 1,300,000 new jobs in 100 days. You look 
at what we actually accomplished. And as an economist, I marvel. I do marvel at what the government did this time because it's so different how Congress responded after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. That was a one and done. They did a a fiscal package and then they sort of just walked away from it. This time, you know, I mentioned earlier the CARES Act. That was immediately, as soon as the pandemic hit in March of last year, Congress just without hesitation or delay cranked out a $2.2 trillion package. And you remember that included $1,200 checks that went to most people. It included $600 a week in federal unemployment insurance for people who lost jobs in the pandemic. And it expanded the unemployment benefits to include people who were previously left out, like gig workers and so forth. So for the very first time, we had a recession, a serious downturn in the economy, and poverty rates went down, not up, as unemployment increased. And then Congress came back in March of last year and did another package, $900 billion. And then they came back in March of this year with only Democrats supporting it and did $1.9 trillion. And this is when we got the child tax credit. And so you've got a lot of families now who are receiving millions of people getting $300 a week to help with a child. Some people who have two or three kids are getting six or $900 a week. And we have lifted almost half of the kids in this country out of poverty with a single provision in a piece of legislation. And so you look at that and you say, that expires this month in December, right? It's the end of the year. It expires. Now, Congress has the opportunity in the Build Back Better Act to make sure it doesn't expire. And you think, How could they not when the choice is to let all of these kids fall back into poverty or simply extend that provision? It seems like it it ought to be a no-brainer. I know this is probably a big ask, but can you briefly explain what modern monetary theory is to our listeners? Yeah, it's so when you think about economics, I mean, if to the extent that people think about economics, there are all these different schools of thought. Maybe people have heard of like the Austrian school or um, the Keynesian school of economics. Modern monetary theory is a school of economic thought. It's a framework. It's a way of thinking about the economy. It's basically a framework that emphasizes the fact that the U.S. government is no longer on a gold standard. Our currency, the U.S. dollar, is not tethered to gold or to any other finite uh, resource, something that you could run out of. We have what's called a floating exchange rate, a fiat currency. And MMT, or modern monetary theory, is about describing how the monetary system works now since Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971 and says, okay, we should recognize that the monetary system works different now, that there's more policy space available to use fiscal and monetary policy to uplift our people to accomplish more. And the government's budget doesn't work like a household budget. And MMT is about explaining why that's so. And how would applying it to our economic policy change how our economy and how our government manages it? If you're trapped in a gold standard framework, then you're asking questions like, where will we find the money? To pay for that. So, someone has a great idea like keeping kids out of poverty, repairing infrastructure, providing some free college or health care for all. And the first question everyone asks is, How are you going to pay for it? Where is the money going to come from? You literally hear politicians say, How will you find the money? 
as if we're still on a gold standard, as if you actually have to go find gold and discover money in order to pay for things. So MMT shifts that thinking. It says that asking how will you pay for it is the wrong question. It turns out that finding the money is the easy part. The hard part is managing our real resources. So MMT would have us ask not how will you pay for it, but how will you resource it? If you want universal health care, for example, it's easy for Congress to simply pay the medical bills and cover the pharmaceutical drug costs and so forth and reimburse pharma companies. That's easy to do. The hard part, if you're promising health care for everyone, is making sure that you have enough doctors and nurses and hospital beds and um, specialists and mental health care professionals and all the rest of it. Because what you're really promising is to deliver something real. The financing is the easy part, but how will you resource it? If you want free college, the hard part is making sure you have enough faculty and staff and classrooms and dormitories and all of the things that you need to deliver healthcare or free college, right? So MMT just helps us by getting the easy part out of the way. How will you pay for it? And then it becomes about managing inflation risk and real resources. And in your book, The Deficit Myth, which I really enjoyed, you argue that a federal deficit is actually healthy for an economy. Can you go into that a little bit? Yes. So look, one what thing I like to that say is that really every deficit is good for something right now is the concept of the government's deficit. And the reason is that governments around the world are increasing their deficit spending right now. And that has the potential to make a lot of people nervous. And we don't want that. And it's important that we're able to breathe through this moment and to start to think about and look at government deficits in a new way. That's what people need to understand. Every deficit is good for someone. Why? Because go back to the definition of the deficit, the difference between two numbers right? How many dollars the government spends into the economy compared to how many dollars they subtract back out, mostly through taxation. So when the government does this thing called running a deficit, it just means that they are adding more than they're subtracting. So if the government is adding more than it's subtracting, what it means is that someone's getting something. The government's deficits appear as financial surpluses in some other part of the economy. Think about the Republican tax cuts. In 2017, Donald Trump is president, Republicans control the House and the Senate, and they push through these huge tax cuts, not because they think, and and they know that it's going to add close to $2 trillion to the deficit. They don't do that thinking, oh, this is going to be bad for someone. They do that knowing this is going to be good for someone, right? Our deficits, the government's deficits, are the surpluses that go somewhere else in the economy. A government deficit is a financial contribution. It's like the government making a deposit into some other part of the economy. So when Republicans run deficits, they like to divert that surplus into the hands of the people who, frankly, least need the help. The windfall goes to the people at the very top, goes to big corporations. But look at the CARES Act. Or look at the $1.9 trillion COVID bill that was done under the Biden administration with Democrats only. That $1.9 trillion went to a very different constituency. Both deficits were good for someone, 
but they were good for very different groups of the population. Thank you for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess my next question is then why do some of those on the right, and by saying those on the right, I'm also including Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and other conservative Democrats in this group, why do they insist that it is so dangerous? Well, I think it's an excuse. I think it's a convenient excuse because not enough of the American population has been educated about the way a government deficit works. And so most Americans still think that a government deficit is evidence of some kind of fiscal irresponsibility, that the government's not managing its budget the way it ought to. It's being irresponsible. So if somebody like Joe Manchin says, gee, I don't know if I can support this next round of spending because it adds to the deficit, he can come across as kind of the grown-up in the room, as very sensible. Whether he believes it or not, I don't know. I think that maybe he does. I I know for a fact that he's got an aide, a senior aide, who every day sends him an update, I think a text message, on how much the national debt has increased compared to yesterday. So literally, 24-hour update. So it's possible that he's a true believer. I don't know. But I do know that the deficit and the national debt are very convenient political excuses that allow lawmakers to say, look, I would love to support child care and elder care and all the rest of the stuff, but I I just can't bring myself to vote for this because we got to worry about the national debt. We got to worry about the deficit. And it's like a get out of jail free card for these guys. It really is amazing to me to think that anyone could vote against, A, their own self-interest, right, when you see the American people go to the polls, but also how an elected official could vote against the best interest of their constituents. It's just mind-boggling to me. I like to think that they all have these hearts of service and they lead from a place of service, and maybe that's how they all got in there. But at a certain point, you look at people like Manchin and Cinema. I just marvel at their inability to do what is right for their constituents. I have the trillion dollar question for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Maybe a dumb question. Bring it. So if, I've always wondered this, if a federal government can just create more money to do the things it wants to do, is money even like a real thing? Why do we have it at all? And really, why have any limitations on it? Well, so humans made it up. Uh, there, there are no two ways about that. Money does not exist in nature. Humans had to invent this thing. And governments invented currencies historically because they wanted to, we could say, provision themselves with certain things. A government might want a standing army or infrastructure, roads and things like that. And you need people to build these things and to be fighters in your army and so forth. And so how do you do that? One way to do it is to compel people to work and provide the state with the resources it wants by imposing taxes. And that's what happened historically. Governments impose obligations on a population. It could be a tax or a fee or a fine or any other kind of financial obligation and say, you have to pay me in this currency. And the people then say, I don't have the currency. And the government then says, oh, I can help you with that. I will hire you to fight in my army or build my infrastructure 
I will pay you in this currency that I created and invented. And then you give me back a portion of it to settle your obligation, your tax or your fees or whatever to the state. And so the reason really that we have money in from inception is because some entity, early entities before states even, but later states wanted to provide themselves, provision themselves with resources. And the currency was the way to do that. But why can't we just make more? Well, we do. And that's the point, right? We've just been talking about basically $5 trillion and change that Congress has had manufactured on its behalf, right? On behalf of the U.S. Treasury. We created, the government created more than $5 trillion to shore up the economy, to help us, you know, through the pandemic. Not that we're through the pandemic. Obviously, we are not through the pandemic. But these bills that Congress writes are basically a set of instructions that go to the government's bank, the Federal Reserve. And the legislation says to the Fed, get ready. We are ordering a brief up lesson on the Federal Reserve system. Or $1.9 The Federal Reserve, or the Fed, is the central bank of the United States. As the central bank, it determines our nation's monetary policy. This means the Fed determines how much money is floating around in the U.S. economic ecosystem, ready to be spent on goods or services. By controlling the money supply, the Fed is able to influence both interest rates and the health of the overall economy. The Fed's goal is to keep two important economic metrics in check, unemployment and inflation. And that's where it comes from. The the Fed's job is to make all of the payments that have been authorized by Congress on behalf of the U.S. Treasury. And they do that. I I hope I don't scare anyone. They do that using nothing more than a computer keyboard to change the numbers in the bank account in the appropriate direction. So when that $1,200 check goes out, somebody's typing the numbers in and the balance in somebody's account increases by $1,200. So we do make the money as Congress authorizes. It's so outside of what I do. I can't even wrap my head around it. But I do want to I want to talk more about and we touched on it before, but I want to talk more about the inflation that America is currently experiencing, because I think it's being used as a talking point from the right. And I think it's scaring people on the left. So just go through how bad is it? And should the government even be doing something to rein it in? Okay, so how bad is it? It depends who you are. People don't like to pay more for gas, for example. And it's hard on some people, right? When you're used to paying, let's say, $40 to fill up the tank and maybe you have to drive long distances to work and all of a sudden it's $85, that's a real hardship for people. It's a hardship when people are not making a living wage as well. Exactly. So for people who are on a very tight budget, when food prices go up, even what might to us seem like a fairly small increase in prices, for a lot of people, that's a big bite out of the household budget. So the question, I guess, is what is causing, what's driving all of this inflation? And I think that most economists and other experts agree that, you know, 
but for COVID, we don't have an inflation problem. We don't have inflation running at 6.2%, which is where we are today, but for COVID. So what happened? Well, the economy is a global economy, first of all, and it doesn't work like your car. I could take my car, park it in the garage, throw the keys in a drawer, go to Europe for 18 months, come back, pull the keys out, stick it in the ignition, start the car and drive off and everything would work perfectly. You can't do that with an economy. You can't shut down parts of the economy, pack on and expect everything to just work right away. It doesn't work like that. So the pandemic created what everybody is hearing about, which are all of these problems in the supply chain. We have for decades seen corporations decide, how am I going to produce whatever it is, a car or computers or iPhones or whatever it is? How do I want to produce my stuff? And they said, well, I want to try to produce it at the lowest possible cost. I want to look for parts in the world where environmental standards are the weakest. I want to... So I'm going to split up production and do a little bit here in this country and a little bit here in this country. And then I'm going to have the parts assembled and put together. And then eventually I'm going to have a whole car at the end of the day, right? But the chips are manufactured in Southeast Asia. And this other thing is manufactured in this other country. And when there's a break in the supply chain, because there's a COVID outbreak in Vietnam or Malaysia, and they shut a factory down and they're not producing the computer chips because the semiconductor plant is shut down, then the auto manufacturer can't get the parts they need to finish producing. And so prices go up. When you say, what should we be doing about the inflation? It almost is more like saying, what should we be doing to end the pandemic globally? Because you don't get out of this until the pandemic is under control. You're not, we're not going to escape this. We're going to have supply chain problems, which means we're going to have inflation problems for as long as we have a COVID problem. And we've seen huge profiteers during these crises, especially during the pandemic. And I'm just always struck by this stat that fewer than a thousand Americans now hold more than two thirds of our national wealth. How does that happen? And how badly does it hurt us? It happens over a long period of time and through many different mechanisms. Some people would say it's basically that the economy has been rigged in favor of large corporations and of the wealthy, many of whom draft the legislation that ends up benefiting them, whether it's the trade laws, the tax laws, uh, labor laws. We have built a system over a period of decades. You can call it shifting to a neoliberal economic philosophy, but that's what we've done. We have created a system that enables the accumulation of wealth by a smaller and smaller group of people, and it rises to the very top. How does it happen? It happens because those who are producing the output, the income, the revenue that becomes the profits are producing more and more profit that is going to those at the very top. And they're writing the rules. I think that's the most important part. There was a recent report that showed that new housing construction is starting to contract. And I think part of that is because there's a lack of physical and human resources. You've argued that the federal government should consider loosening immigration laws as an economic decision. Can you explain that and tell us what it would mean for our economy? 
Sure. So I think there are easy ways to argue in favor of different immigration policy, independent of saying we need more workers. Okay? But that was just one thing that I included in that piece that you referred to earlier. People are all hearing about labor shortages. I don't think there's a labor shortage. I think what we have is a, a shortage of employers who are prepared to pay the wages and provide the safety measures and so forth that will bring workers into the labor force and willing to take some of these jobs. But if you believe that we actually have a problem of not enough workers to do the work that needs to be done, then an obvious solution is that there are millions of people around the world who would love nothing more than to come to this country and work and contribute, take jobs. And so immigration policy is just low-hanging fruit in terms of how to accommodate the need for more workers. And my last question, which I ask to all of my guests, is what gives you hope? Young people who I think see the world that they're inheriting and they don't want that world and they're willing to stand up and, and to fight for the kind of world that they want. They don't accept excuses. They don't accept no. They look at what's happening with climate, I think, in particular, and they're terrified and they're willing to stand up and say that there is no way that we're going to let this happen. And so young people give me hope. Stephanie Kelton, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Here in the U.S. So much for having and around me. the world, governments did some extraordinary things. They sent money to people directly to help them buy food and pay rent. They provided free COVID testing and expanded healthcare to cover more of the population. They gave money to businesses to help keep them afloat while much of the economy was temporarily shut down. They offered debt relief to millions of people who borrowed money to go to college. They did all of this and more without raising taxes or having a prolonged battle over the usual question of how to pay for it. To me, this was exciting. And I'm an economist, so I don't say that a lot. Who is the economy for? Those on the right, through the policy they support, seem to think that the economy is for the very richest Americans. A recent article on inequality.org revealed that the richest 745 Americans hold about $5 trillion in wealth. The rest of America holds about $3 trillion. If you want to talk about a deficit, there it is. There is a wealth deficit in America where the richest are hoarding the money we do have and making it harder for the rest of us to afford things. Fewer than 1,000 people hold about two-thirds of our wealth. Think about that. And think about how damaging it is to our economy, to our communities, and to our families. We can do better. We have enough money in America and a near-unlimited ability to make more. But if it keeps going to the people who already have more money than some entire nations, then what the hell are we even doing? 
We need monetary policy that works for the 330 million, not for the less than 1,000. That would make America great again. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.